0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, still early on in our, um, our sermon series on the gospel according to Luke, mission to the world, first chapter. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back there by the sound booth. Um, to my left, to your, um, back there, to grab one of those and uh, open it up and follow along with us. And if you don't own a Bible, then as the, you take that, um, we pray you would also take it home with you. And uh, that you would uh, read it and learn from it and uh, return with us next week as well. So if you missed any of the past sermons, you can find them on our website. Again, we're just early on in in the Gospel according to Luke, but you can still catch up and uh, hear all that's come before today. Luke um, chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. Sermons are online, kingschapel.net slash sermon. If you're new to Kings Chapel, I should just let you know that we preach um, expositionally through the Bible. What that means is that we allow, really, the Bible to take center stage, uh, the authority over us um, as we worship on Sunday mornings, um, and what we do is that we uh, are acknowledging that God has spoken, and that his, and he's spoken to us in his word. He disclosed himself to us, his plans, his purposes, and his promises, and, um, and all that for humanity, and just as we are the gracious recipients of the gift of life itself, that we're all standing, sitting here together breathing. And that's because of God has given us breath in our lungs, we are also his recipients of his gift of his word um, that we have open this morning. So we are going to surrender ourselves before the authority of God's word, submitting to it, um, and, uh, and learning the valuable truths of scripture, wisdom that comes from scripture, and guidance in the pages that are there. So um, as we look to study it together. So practically speaking, though, expositionally preaching means that we're going to go through the Bible um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Um, And we're just going to take it nice and slow and savor it, because we do recognize um, that we're going, as we draw the meaning out of the text, text, um, we're hearing from the Lord, and uh, then we're then uh, taking those truths and applying them to our lives, and that's how we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. So, our series, through the, through the, the gospel according to Luke, is Mission to the World, and over the last few weeks, we've already seen that playing out. God's unfolding this global mission to seek and to save the lost. And he's doing it in ways that were surprising to the original characters, um, uh, those that we're reading about, uh, as we see them respond in, histo- in history. Um, and hopefully it should be surprising to us as well. It should be surprising to us that a holy, almighty God should choose to use us as instruments in his divine plans and purposes. And that's the main, the, the, the main, uh, the main theme of our text this morning, is that the Triune God blesses his humble servants by graciously including them as participants in his redemptive plans, leading to their joy filled praise and worship. I'll say it again. The Triune God blesses his humble servants by graciously including them as participants in his redemptive plans, leading to their joy filled praise and worship. The truth. As we're looking at it this morning from our text should simultaneously humble us that God would choose to use us, but also should excite us. Despite our weaknesses, God saves us and then he commissions us to take part in his mission. And that was true in centuries past. That's true today presently and that's going to continue to, to be true into the future. Until he comes back for his bride and that's all to the praise and exaltation in the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to do something um, unheard of this morning. I'm actually going to only have two points to my sermon. Um, you're going to have to help me in the back there, though, because I don't have any way of, 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 of um, moving the slides, but if you do that for me, that would be great. But only two, but just so you're not disappointed, I'm going to have multiple points between, underneath each of those points. So subpoints there, but only two main points. Um, the two points we're going to look at this morning are first that we're going to see Elizabeth's Enunciation, and then we're going to look at Mary's Magnificat. So the first one we're going to look at is Elizabeth's Enunciation, this, this praise that she gives by the Spirit's leading in verses 39 through 45. But, and as we look in there, before we actually get to the text um, this morning, What's referred to as the visitation—the time that Mary and Elizabeth are going to be meeting up—that's what um, theologians call this. This visitation. It's, we're going to take a, a brief look back to six months prior. So if you're if you're like if you were watching a movie, this would be like that that screen that comes up and says six months ahead or six months before, I should say, this happened. It's going to come flashing flash across the, uh, the screen. A priest named Zechariah right, is is we we read about is visited by the angel Gabriel, and he's given this incredible message. His barren post-menopausal wife Elizabeth is going to conceive a son. His name's going to be John, so they don't have to worry about picking a name out. they have been told this is his name, John. And he will be great before the Lord, as we see in verse 14. And He's going to be a prophet like Elijah who will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then not long after that, the same angel, Gabriel, is going to go and he visits Mary, this, this young, unwed, virgin girl, and he announces that she's going to miraculously conceive in her virginity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to give birth, birth to a son named Jesus who will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Just put yourself in, in, her, in her spot, in her shoes as you're hearing that. So we see there are these two miraculous announcements and two miraculous pregnancies. And what's striking is not just the similarities, although they are striking in them themselves, but just as striking as those similarities are the differences in each of those encounters that they have with the angel. We won't get into all of them this morning, but I just want to point out two of them. Probably the most two important differences between the two announcements to Zechariah and Mary are, first of all, the responses that, that, to the angel's message by each of those people, by Zechariah and by Mary, and also the identities of these two sons. So Zechariah calls into question God's ability to perform his plan, right? A plan that would prepare the way of God's Messiah and answer his year-long prayer for a child. And we see that because of his lack of faith, because he did not believe, God's going to strike him with silence. He's not going to be able to speak for the entire duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Maybe to her that's actually a blessing in disguise, right? That she doesn't have... Anybody talking to her, she, just, she can tell him what to do and help her out in her pregnancy. But because of his lack of faith, he will be unable to experience the joy that comes, right, with, with sharing the message of not only his, his own personal blessing that God's blessed him with, with a son that he's been praying for for all this time, but also the imminent salvation to Israel that's coming with John, his son. Contrast that now with, with Mary's response. She's young, she's likely uh, an illiterate teenage girl, and she yet displays greater faith than the seasoned priest did. And humility, she surrenders herself to God's will, calling herself God's servant and actually becomes a willing participant in God's glorious plan of redemption. Now, fast forward back to our text this morning. Right? Mary's next course of action as soon as she hears this this proclamation from the, the angel Gabriel immediately goes to see Elizabeth. So Zechariah's ability to speak is removed, and at the same time, conversely, Mary's excitement and joy and hearing this message rouses her to go and to speak. Right? She immediately makes these plans to go visit Elizabeth and would have been, for her, a three or four, four day journey. So it's not just a, a small length of time. It's not, she can just go right down the road. It's an 80 to 100 mile trip. And it, but it, it might have been hasty, but it was not impulsive. Because Mary would have had to, right, gather all the supplies that she needed to prepare for this journey that would, and, and go and stay with Elizabeth for, as we see, for three months. So, but Why did Mary go and visit Elizabeth? That's, that's the question, right? Well I think what we can see from the scripture is that she wanted to celebrate and to share the good news that she had received. She wanted to celebrate and join in Elizabeth's excitement and and her joy that this once barren woman is now pregnant and is gonna be with child. And she also was going to share in the news that she also was miraculously pregnant as well. And and think about the excitement that she must have been uh, going through and experiencing as she's traveling to go to Judah. And may I say, there's, this, there's definitely this, a special joy, right, that's experienced when, when, when uh, two pregnant women get together, two pregnant mothers get together, and they, and they share that experience together. Am I right, ladies, that there's, there's a special joy that, that accompanies that, that meeting and that gathering together? But their personal joy here is also connected with the joy that's going to be experienced by the nation, the entire nation of Israel. God's people had for centuries been waiting for this moment. They were anticipating a time when God would powerfully act on their behalf as he had done throughout their history. Saving them from oppression, saving them from um, captivity. But this time, God's going to fulfill his promise by sending a Messiah. Anointed one who would appear and would finally save them from all their enemies for all times. And although Mary and Elizabeth didn't know specifically how that was going to happen, how God was going to deliver them, they did know that salvation was going to come through these two children that they were bearing in their wombs. And they understood that they were blessed. They were were blessed to be the players in God's mighty and merciful redemption that He was playing out in history, But before Mary could even share the news, right, before she could say anything to Elizabeth, while she's still in the middle of her greeting by saying, hello, I'm here, announcing that she's arrived from her journey, there's this immediate, this immediate response from the preborn John who, it says, leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And Luke doesn't leave us wondering why he included that piece of information in his account here, it's not by coincidence that John moved as he did in Elizabeth's womb. John's not responding to Elizabeth's voice, we, we know that as babies tend to do, right? She's, she's he, he's not responding to her prodding or, or touching her, her belly. Or it's not because that Elizabeth just ate breakfast and now the baby's got a surge of energy moving around. Luke wants us to understand the significance of the fact that this preborn baby leaps in Elizabeth's drew, uh, womb because he's joyful in joy. Verse 44 For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I just want to point out two important things that we can learn from just this, this seemingly small but impactful act. First, the preborn John is a person made in the image and likeness of God and has dignity, value, that comes with that personhood. He's emotive, he has emotion, he has volition, and he's also, he says here, filled with the Holy Spirit. And There's no other way that this child would have evoked this joyful response at the presence of Jesus than by the Spirit's revealing that to him. Obviously, he couldn't have understand all that that meant or understood the, the true significance of, the, of that moment. But the Holy Spirit, who only indwells people, only in, in, indwells and powers people, filled John in that moment as God had formally promised he would do in verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord and he will must not drink wine or strong drink. And he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Human life is a blessing even when it comes at an inconvenient time or when it's unwanted, right? Unborn children at their most vulnerable and fragile state of development deserve to be treated with respect, to be protected, to be cared for, and to be loved. And as Christians, we're responsible, right? We're responsible for declaring that truth into the culture of death that's around us, welcoming children into the shelter of loving homes, assisting Often confused, maybe, and, and, and frightened mothers and, and young parents. And not just at the hour of their birth, right? Or even in the stages of infancy, but in all stages of life. Amen? That's why, some, why we are partners with places like the Alpha Pregnancy Care Center, Justice for Orphans. We call them our gospel partners. And you can find more about the ways in which um, they are helping uh, children, Uh, You can also join in and see how they help women in crisis pregnancies and children in foster care right from our website. Just go right down to the bottom of our website. You can see our gospel partners and find out more about that. That's one thing we can learn from what we hear read in this text about John's leaping in the womb. But secondly, we see that John has essentially, in that moment, already begun his God-given ministry as the prophet, as the forerunner to the Messiah by testifying in that moment that Jesus was present even if, even though he's not even old enough yet to proclaim, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world," he'll do that later. But now he does it in leaps of joy. By the way, that's that's just so you know, that's, that's a six-month preborn child that's pointing to the personal presence of a days-old preborn child, Jesus, who's, you know, I'm not a biologist, but a zygote, you know, not even that much developed yet, still developing. So that's, that's personhood we see here even before a viability. But why do I say that John's begun his first work of ministry? It's because John's joyful, this, this joyful prenatal dance that's, that's going on is accompanied by the Spirit's illuminating work. It, it clues Elizabeth into what's happening, right? And she's compelled herself by the Spirit as well, not simply to speak, but to then Exclaim to proclaim with a loud voice God's blessing to Mary. She does this by first announcing that Mary is blessed because God has set his special favor on her to be the mother of the Messiah. In this sense, Elizabeth is not not bestowing a blessing on Mary in, in itself as though she can give that, but rather what she's doing here is she's affirming that God has already blessed Mary. That he is the one that's bestowing the blessing. He's bestowed his special favor. And that's what blessing means. It's it the special favor of God? He's granting Mary this blessing by using her, by, by giving her this, this, this privilege, that's this wonderful, extraordinary, phenomenal, use any superlative you can think of, privilege to carry to term and to mother the one who is God's gift of salvation to Israel, and not just to Israel, but to the entire world as well. Look at verses 41 and 42. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth praises Mary not because she learned, she herself had earned some superiority so some status of, that was greater, at a greater level, greater degree, but because God had set his gracious favor on her. She's been blessed by God because of what God has done for her, not what she has done or what she could possibly do for others or to, to earn any kind of favor in God. Remember what I said earlier? Remember that there are two main differences between those two accounts that we saw with with Gabriel uh, announcing to Zechariah and Mary about these miraculous births. Well, one we saw was the, the response to the message, but then here and now we're seeing underscored that the other is the identity of these two children. John would grow up to be the man that God had sovereignly chosen him to be, right? The forerunner of the Messiah, a, a great man, and in Jesus' own words, the greatest of the prophets. But the child in Mary's womb was greater than John. He's not just John's Lord, though. Elizabeth here recognizes that Mary's son is also her Lord. right? She's acknowledging the superiority of the child in Mary's womb. And although she's older than, than Mary, she's the older, she's, this, she's blessing and, and praising this much younger Mary because of the child that she is bearing. Elizabeth is, is the first we see to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus. And she does this even before he's born. He does it, she does this because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to her the same way that the Holy Spirit will reveal it will to Zechariah later on in verse 67 and in chapter 2 to Simeon and to Anna later on when Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus to the temple. And her knee-jerk reaction here is to proclaim that good news, to, to proclaim the message of God's gracious gift She recognizes that the baby is her Lord and she acknowledges her loyalty now to this unborn King of Kings and she's moved beyond just simple belief but but she is trusting and she's placing her, her faith in this child. She's submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and again her response is that she's going to proclaim it for people to hear. Is that our response when we hear the revelation from God, from, from His holy Word, when the Spirit moves us and, and illuminates it and helps us to understand with clarity what it is that God has spoken. The same Holy Spirit that filled Elizabeth opens the eyes of God's people to see the glory of Christ as the beloved Son of God, and that should move us to declare that Jesus is Lord. right? First Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says that, None can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who directs our eyes to Jesus and leads us in humble, Christ-exalting praise and worship as our response. That's the Holy Spirit's role, is is to bring light to Christ, to bring our eyes to Him. And unlike the angel Gabriel, who communicated God's word but had no control over the hearer's response... It's God, the Holy Spirit, who reveals the truth of God's word to our hearts, and He awakens our souls to magnify Christ. And He guides and empowers us to to live godly lives as a response for God's glory. And here we see plainly in this text the Trinitarian work of God, the Trinitarian redemptive work of God, that it comes from a God who is one God that is um, revealed in three persons. Salvation is first like initiated by God the Father who sends Jesus Christ, the Son, to deliver us from sin. And then God the Son, Jesus, procures our salvation by bearing our sin on the cross and then also rising from the dead. And it's God the Holy Spirit who then applies Christ's atoning work into our hearts, regenerating our hearts, bringing them uh, to saving faith at the preaching of the gospel. So we hear, see here and throughout all of Luke and we see it through all of Scripture The gospel is a Trinitarian act of God. In the middle of this praise, Elizabeth says, And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? If you're a believer, doesn't that that question also resonate with you? Everyone who's experienced the spiritual birth, when the Holy Spirit has awakened us to the wonderful reality that Jesus is, the Lord, that Jesus is Christ, He is our Deliverer, will ask at some point, why me? Right? Why is this incredible blessing granted to me? To know God, to be known by God, as Galatians chapter 4 says. And the answer is always the same when we look for an answer. It's all of grace. It's by grace we are saved. Notice that Elizabeth doesn't call Mary here the mother of God, a title that would Exalt Mary. That's never a title that's ever given to her in Scripture, but it was contrived by the, whole, the Roman Catholic Church. And here we see that Elizabeth's focus is not on the Lordship, is, is on the, I'm sorry, it's not on exalting Mary, but it's on the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His exaltation. The second reason that Elizabeth calls Mary blessed is because of her faith. Verse 45 And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed that God had told her what God had told her, and she humbly submitted to His sovereign plan even before she saw it being fulfilled. She believed that it would come to pass as God had ordained, and she trusted God's word, and she would, that she would miraculously bear a son, and that her son would be the salvation for the nation of Israel and the world. And Jesus' name says it all, right? God is salvation. That's what his name means. And again, Elizabeth's words can be attributed to all who trust in God's word. We have the advantage of looking back at the many ways, right, that God has fulfilled his salvific plans and promises. And we see it climax with the incarnation when when Jesus comes. in flesh, as he comes down from glory, from his throne in heaven, to put on flesh to be, become the unique God man. And our faith is in Jesus who accomplished everything that was needed for salvation. But like Mary and Elizabeth, we await also the final consummation of Christ's work at his second advent. Right? In the midst of our waiting, we are called to imitate the faith of these two women here. Both mothers played this essential role. In God's plan of salvation for Israel and for the world, but the mission didn't end with them. Right? God also blesses all of us, all those who belong to Him, who belong to Christ, and who have the privilege of, of loving God, right? Loving others, the two great commandments, and making disciples of all nations, right? The Great Commission. So the question for us ourselves: are, are we moved in that way by the gospel? Does, does it evoke in you? a trust and a joy and a a desire to serve Christ? Or are you serving God because he has blessed you with his loving and gracious favor, the favor that Christ has won for us? Or are you working to earn some blessing? The gospel is so good, it's, it's called good news because it means that God's favor, his salvation, is given to us freely in Christ. Now let's turn to the second portion, our second point this morning, as we look at verses 46 to 56, as we see Mary's response to the praises that Elizabeth had just vocalized. Mary is, is so moved by Elizabeth's spirit-filled blessing that she launches into a song that's all her own, almost like, like a good musical would do, like, right? It's known traditionally as the Magnificat, taken from the first line of the song, My soul magnifies the Lord. And that word magnificat is a Latin translation of the Greek word that means to, to magnify, means to, to exalt. And we don't know if this was an immediate, like a spontaneous song that came out of, out of Mary, or if it she wrote this um, during her three-month stay with Elizabeth. But we do know that Mary is the author, because Luke says she's the author, and that Mary is wrote this this hymn, as it were, as a thanksgiving to God. And it's astonishing, right? When you look at it, it's astonishing. If you remember, that she was a teenage girl and she wrote this. And although she was as young as she was, it's abundantly clear that she had a firm grasp of scripture, right? She evidently knew and she understood God's word, believed it, and she had hid it in her heart. And here now we see... She celebrates it. She celebrates God's holy and extraordinary character through this hymn of praise. You see, if you were to compare this with, with Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there's, there's a, a really close similarity, but also not only with that, but with other psalms we see throughout scripture and the Old Testament scripture that she knew very well. And it teaches us that, that praise is born out of God's blessing It comes as a response to what God has already shown to us and, and bestowed upon His people. And there are three different ways, three different parts here we see of Mary's response in her song. We see that there's a personal aspect of the praise, a generational or timeless praise that she, um, that she gives, and there's this national praise. Mary first begins by just calling attention to... God who, who blessed her, and this entire song as we see is, is saturated with God-glorifying lyrics. It, it's, this is worship, is what it is. And in the heart of those who are blessed by God, worship is the inevitable outcome. It inevitably follows God's blessing. Like, like Mary, genuine pl- praise is going to rise from deep within us, from within the recesses of, recesses of our souls and, and our spirit and from our hearts, when a sinner has been saved by grace, that's, that's the response. And that true, that worship, that genuine worship that does come to the surface and bubbles up and out of us can't be, can't be squashed. As the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, Come Thou Fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. All right, worship combines this exalting of God, whether it's vocally or in, in God-fearing behavior or, or acts. So it combines that exaltation of God and rejoicing in God. The two are, are woven together. They're, they're interconnected, magnifying God and rejoicing in Him. Right? Our, and when we do that, our, our senses, our thoughts, our emotions, they're all players in, in, this, in this endeavor right? to, to worship God faithfully. They all contribute. They're all players in our praise. And the problem is that sometimes they, right, they get out of joint, right? When one of these different aspects is out of joint, we, we, we then rely on those others to then bolster our worship. Where the others lack, the others come in to help out because we still struggle with sin. We, we're never going to fire always on, on all cylinders. And that's why we often talk here about preaching the gospel to ourselves. When, when our emotions fail us, and they do often, mine do, when they fail us we, and we endeavor to worship God and rejoice in Him, then we have to right, think on the gospel. We have to ruminate on the gospel. The good news of, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus has forgiven our sins, that we are secure in God's never-ending love for us, that we are God's adopted children. And we are the ones who are awaiting our eternal home in heaven with Him where as Psalm chapter 16 says that in His presence is fullness of joy and as at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. But you know what also helps us when we desperately need some gospel-centered clarity and encouragement? It comes from Community. Comes with fellowship within the community of faith. Elizabeth's spirit-filled praise ignited this worship within Mary's heart that she then e- expressed in song. And family, we need each other. Am I right? We need each other. Our culture often stresses and, and celebrates self-independence without realizing that we are actually made as interdependent creatures. First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about. Um, describes the church using the metaphor of a body, a body that's made up with many different parts. Each of us are different parts of one body, a hand, a foot, an ear, an eye. And it functions best when all of these are, are working cooperatively together and are healthy. The Apostle Paul writes, if, "If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are, now you are the body of Christ, an individual individually members of it. All of us individually and collectively find our utmost satisfaction and joy when we are living according to the intended purpose that God has made us for, the way that he's designed us to be. That is by worshiping our mighty and merciful God. And when we struggle, we can recall the gospel and we can also seek the help of our brothers and sisters to reignite the passion within us. Mary praises her God, calling Him her Lord and Savior in this statement and in her song in the opening stanza. In one statement, she totally obliterates the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, right? That she was born without original sin. Only a sinner needs a Savior. And she's confessing her utter inability to save herself, calling God her Savior. And then she moves on the basis, moves on now to the basis of her praise in verses 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary understands her, her condition before God and although she is the lowly young peasant girl, she's also deeply loved by God. He has reached out his hand to bless her. Blessing her with this this unique role of implementing God's plans to save the nation of Israel and the world. And God didn't hide his face from her or ignore her because of her socioeconomic position or because of her age. God has not simply tipped his hat either to to the downtrodden, to the lonely or the humble. He's actually entered into their predicament. He's joined in. He's joined them. He's joined us. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, he humbled himself and entered into the world that he created to save us. And when we think on that, when we reflect on that, that should should be mind-boggling, right? There's just a a monumental shift has taken place with Christ's coming. The, The old has passed away. Something new has emerged. Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This miraculous event was so significant, it was it's enough to, to divide history from BC to AD. Right? In Simon's words that were spoken in Luke chapter two, we'll see uh, coming up that the child within Mary's womb will be the salvation God prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. Mary recognized this situation that she was in was a blessing. and We don't always see our situations as blessings, right? Our definition of blessing usually means success or happiness or prosperity. That's what hashtag blessed usually refers to, right? And yeah, that, that is really the title of the sermon. And yes, those, those things can and are divine Blessings, that they come from God themselves, but blessing doesn't always look that way, if we're honest, right? Mary praised God for selecting her as this significant player in his redemptive plans, but that didn't mean it was gonna be easy. Pregnancy and raising children, yeah, not that all that easy, or comfortable, or convenient, right? It's difficult, it's painful, it's challenging, and it requires self-sacrificial love. That's not the default mode of our hearts, right? But Mary would soon be told herself, she would, let her, she would be, be privy to this, that there was as much joy as there was in this experience, that the sword would pierce through her own soul as well. She would experience pain and suffering as the mother of the Messiah, not just joy at all times, not just happiness. When we were faithful to God's calling in our lives, that's when we're blessed, even when it's difficult. Even when it's arduous or hard or we feel exhausted or thankless. The trick is not to give up. To keep going. To keep relying on the Spirit's power. Even in the mundane tasks of life. In your home. In, your, in our jobs. Our careers. And even in our, our recreation. Even in our, even in our artistic expression. In our rest. Your fuel is not the recognition of others. Our fuel is not the recognition that we get from other people, accolades, but it's the satisfaction of knowing that we are right where God wants us to be and that he loves us, he cherishes us, he provides for us all that we need. And one day we will see him with our own eyes, right, the one who's blessed us by dying in our place. And we'll hear the sobering words for all those who have been blessed by him Well done, good and faithful servant. And remember that the most favored one that ever lived, the beloved Son of God, suffered immensely as no human being had ever suffered as he hung on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, shouldering the wrath of a holy God that should have come down on us. And he did that so that you could be freed so I could be freed, so we could be freed from the torment of eternal judgment in hell. A holy God, one that's morally pure, unstained by sin, and also separate, greater than, sovereign control of His creation. God is transcendent over the universe that He created, whose glorious, magnificent present renders anything in comparison to Him as insignificant, tiny, and pitiful, and yet, he sets his sights on saving us. Doesn't that truth, comprehending what Christ has done, that apprehending what, what we just looked at, that, that, doesn't that just magnify the, the beauty of God's grace to, to us? Doesn't it cause you delight in God's mercy to you? We see now that Mary just is shifting her focus from herself from her personal praise and uh, blessing that she's experienced now to this generational or timeless praise, she's praising God that this mercy extends far beyond herself. She's not the only one touched by God's mercy. His mercy is shared by all who fear Him. Not a frightening fear of God, but one of deep, deep reverence and awe and humble submission to Him. Mary is just one of a vast community of faith. A community that spans all times in all directions, right? Those who have been saved by God's right arm in the past, in the present, and moving on into the future. That is, we see that it's His mighty right arm is the one that is saving people, saving sinners. Now God you know, doesn't have a physical arm Right? He's, he's, he is a spiritual being, but this is what's called an anthropomorphism. It's when we attribute physical traits to God to explain an aspect of his character so we can, we can comprehend, we can apprehend what he's, who he is and what he does and how he, how he acts in the world. And this metaphor is used frequently in the Old Testament as a way of describing God's active power and his strength to perform his intended plans. Nothing or no one's going to win an arm wrestling match with God, essentially is what he's saying. He will achieve all that he sets out to do, what he sets out to accomplish. He is going to vindicate his people, and he's going to judge those who stand in willful, unrelenting opposition to his rightful authority. And we see Mary targets three groups of people for God's judgment. Those who stand in opposition to God, the proud, we see here, the, the mighty ruling class, and the rich. First, he's going to, it says here, with his might, scatter the proud. Now the pride is this sinful self-absorption and self-preoccupation that resides deep within one's thoughts, emotions, intentions, actions. Pride regards itself as God and everything is in subservience to it. There's a day that God will then topple all the unification of arrogant hearts as easily as a child falling dominoes. Those who, who trusted in themselves who are fixated on their plans to acquire money or power or prestige will find that God, that the God they dishonored with their words and their actions is infinitely, impressively greater than they are. And if the prouder the schemers in this plan plotting and strategizing to solidify man's glory over God himself, then the next group is the the muscle of that plan, behind the plans. The the mighty, in verse 50, are the rulers, the heads of government that, that supply the force, the force behind this willful, sinful rebellion. And they'll squelch any opposition to their secular humanism with legislation or with outright violence. They appear mighty by the world standards, but compared to the sovereign ruler of the universe, they're infinitesimal. They're small. They're puny. And no matter how famous or influential or no matter how great their nation is that they, they build up, God demolishes their kingdoms right from underneath them. And Mary states in verse 53 that God will then impoverish the rich, not just those who are rich, but those who believe that their wealth in their riches, they, they believe that, the, that their wealth untethers them somehow from God. And what role do they play? Well, they're the investors, right? They're the ones that are behind the plans of the proud. They they fund the government, they fund the muscle. But God will bankrupt them while he while he feeds the hum, the humble. The ones that the that that the, the proud and and, and the and, and those who are pressing the humble, he's going to feed them with good. The ones who had a corner market on the the culture and on the political and governmental landscape will all be leveled. Their injustices against the poor will all be met with God's justice and that also includes the underlying cause of all the social evils and injustices that we see. Sin will finally be dealt with in totality. And what's needed is, is, is a Savior, a deliverer who can rescue God's people from political and spiritual oppression. And it can only be as the hymn states, the only one that can do this is the man of God's own choosing. The Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. He is the rightful ruler of the cosmos. He is the merciful and the mighty. So then we see Mary now proclaiming that God extends his mercy now to his people Israel. The, 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 the word mercy here is actually used also in verse 50. is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word chesed. This refers to God's steadfast love, right? His, his loyal covenantal love that God had made to Abraham in as we, as we read it in, in Genesis chapter 12 and, and restated throughout all of Israel's history. God promised to redeem them from their sin, from their political oppressors, despite their repeated offenses and often their severe sin. And this promised child, Mary's offspring, the offspring of a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is the embodiment of God's mercy to Israel. And if to Israel, then it's to the entire world. As God had said to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you are a, a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Praise God. Amen. With the arrival of Jesus Christ, God's plan of redemption reaches its fulfillment. Right? He's made good with his promise. It's as good as done. And that's why Mary uses the past tense, interestingly, in verses 51 through 55 in her psalm. Mary is communicating by, by doing that. She's, she's cluing us in that, God's ability and power to fulfill his redemptive plans to save his people is sure. His plans are so dependable that they can be viewed as already having been taken place. The coming of God's Messiah is a proclamation of victory over God's enemies and the deliverance of God's people. And for Mary, although Jesus was unborn and was still in her womb, his saving work is so certain to her that it can be regarded as a present reality. That's the extent of Mary's faith. And for all of those who are like her, when we recognize, we realize, we proclaim to ourselves, to one another, that nothing can thwart or reverse God's plans when he has set them in motion. Nothing can stop them. The incarnation, that's when Jesus came in the flesh, which we'll get to shortly, as we, not only in the text here, but as we move into Advent season shortly, the incarnation was, was a death sentence to death itself right it was a lethal injection into satan's arm it was the liberation of those who were in bondage to sin it's as good as done it's as good as done question is do we believe that do we believe that let's pray father thank you for this wonderful gift you've given us in this text we thank you for we thank you for mary and elizabeth and the faith that they um, projected with their lives and with their words, but we ultimately recognize that um, they were blessed because of what you have done. And their faith is, it has been given to them, granted them as a gift, and it's the same gift that you give us by the power of your Spirit. So, Lord, we, we just want to thank you for this morning. We pray that you would work in our hearts and, uh, and that you would challenge us from this text. And the ways that we need challenging is soften our hearts where they need to be softened. And I pray that those here who have, um, are, are maybe realizing for the first time their predicament, their need for a Savior, would humble themselves before you, repent of sins, trust in Jesus Christ, your Son, and that they would um, find the remarkable experience of knowing you and being known by you. Father, once again, thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We thank you, Spirit, for applying the work and empowering us. I pray that we would um, lean on you when, when we don't understand and that we would um, trust in you when, uh, um, and, and help one another and encourage one another when we need it most. And uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. All these things, and for his glory, amen.